Who needs help? Numbers or books?
Good evening and welcome, welcome to all. It is good to begin and to end the Lord's Day in the Lord's house. And so uh, welcome to all members, to all visitors as we rejoice to come into God's presence together. I have uh, one announcement before we begin, and that is that there is now a uh, sign-up sheet available for meals for Clay and Bree after the birth of baby Adeline. Uh, And so please uh, take note of that sign-up sheet in the entryway in the back. Well, let us now enter into God's presence as the prophet Habakkuk has said. We do not worship the God of wood or stone. We worship the living God. Let us come into his presence in silence. stand our call to worship, our call to worship from Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Direct attention to the bulletin, I ask this question. Congregation, where does your help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So we receive God's greeting to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen. Let us turn in song, desiring the house of God together, singing from Psalm 27. 27b stands as 1 and 3 to 6. 1, 3 to 6 of 27b.
page 148 in the smaller forms and prayers book, the Apostles' Creed. Essentially, every line of the Apostles' Creed is directly from one text of Scripture or another. Uh, There's really only one exception to that, and that is the line, He descended into hell. And we uh, will see from our text tonight that that is a biblically uh, true word to confess as well. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, from the Apostles' Creed, I ask you, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us come before our God in prayer this evening. Lord God, our covenant God, the one who is, I am who I am, Yahweh. You are worthy of praise. May we give praise to you. May we sing praise to you. May we sing a new song to you. May we sing to you in the gathered congregation of your people. And may all of your people be glad in you, our Maker, our King, our Father in heaven. Let us give praise to you in every way. Let us have our pleasure in you. Surely, you give special gifts to the humble. You give even the gift which cannot be measured. You give even the gift of salvation. And so may we exult in your glory. May we sing for joy to you. May this be true, uh, yes, in the congregation of the righteous, and may this be true also in uh, all of our all of our places of life. May it be true in, uh, in, our, in our walking. May it be true in, in our bed as we rise up and as we go down. Lord, in the tossings of the night, unable to sleep for one reason or another, Lord, remind us at all times that You are good. 
that you are worthy of praise. And teach us to make you our song in the night. So, O Lord, may we praise you among your people. May we praise you individually. May we praise you not only in the the physical day and the physical night, but through the days and, and nights of the, the figurative days and nights of our life. Give us, give us the strength to praise you in seasons of darkness, in seasons of sickness and doubt and temptation. Give us the clarity to praise you in days of light and strength. May we remember always that any blessing we have is from you. May we remember always that you are the one who will redeem this whole cursed earth and that the sin of man will not be the last word, but your restoring power will be the last word. Surely, Lord God, you, you execute perfect vengeance and righteous punishment. Lord, wherever there is, uh, wherever there is uh, great oppression, uh, wherever there is uh, the, wherever there is the, the fatherless and, and the widow, driven to despair wherever there is uh, unprotected uh, life taken advantage of. Father, you are the perfect king of justice and you will not allow the injustices of this world to stand. Even as, uh, O Lord, uh, you are the one who knows all things. So, uh, Father, we, we pray for your restoring hand. We, we pray for your perfect and righteous judgment. We know that you are worthy of all honor and that uh, you will restore even as, O oh Lord, we pray surely that you would bring uh, many to yourself, that you would uh, bring even Murderers like David, even uh, even uh, the harlots like Rahab, that you would, Father, bring all to yourself and make us all to see our own murderous hearts. Make us all to see our own need of you. And so, O oh Lord, we uh, we pray uh, for uh, the 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 nation that we live in. We pray that you would be with our leaders and our rulers. We pray that you would teach us to honor the positions of authority, even as we so often pray that there would be protection of life instead of the protection of death. And as we as we think of of labors against some of the injustices of this world. Uh, we pray for uh, agencies like uh, the Evangelical Child and Family Agency, ECFA. We pray that you would uh, bless their labors. Uh, we pray that you would provide 
laborers uh, for them and that you would uh, provide uh, adoptive homes, that you would uh, provide uh, those who are willing and ready to come and seek out the help which is there, uh, those who would uh, stand up for uh, for life and uh, make uh, brave decisions. And uh, Father, we we pray for and we pray for wisdom not only for um, for this uh, agency which we know, but O oh Lord, uh, for all those uh, standing and, and working uh, for life. And we pray, O oh Lord. Uh, again, for uh, for spiritual life. We pray for your light upon many hearts, for your light upon our hearts. We pray for revival. We pray for the good news going forth. The good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, let us uh, turn now from Psalm 110, uh, singing about Melchizedek, as mentioned in the Psalms, Melchizedek. One thing to remember about Melchizedek, he is both a priest and a king. And uh, so we sing uh, from Psalm 110. Let's stand together to sing 110b.
think about the justice of God, the wrath of God, and we think about this in relation to Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. Please turn the Smaller Forms and Prayers book, beginning with our confessional reading, page 217. Page 217. Lord's Day 16 from the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll look together at question answers 40 through 44. Uh, Shorter question and answers. Uh, Let's say them together. I'll read the questions. Let's together say the answers. Beginning with question 40 on page 217. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it, nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Turning the page, question 44. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross but also earlier has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. So far the reading of the faithful summary of the Word of God. Let us turn now to the very holy, inspired, inerrant, Word of God, Hebrews chapter 5, page 1278 in the Blue ASV Bibles, uh, close enough to Revelation, you can really work back from Revelation 1 through those uh, shorter uh, general epistles, you get back to Hebrews in short order. Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 to 10. Let us hear the holy word of God, beginning our reading at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God 
to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is death. There is physical death. There is the first death. There is also the second death. Revelation 20 verse 14 says this, then Hades and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. The second death is the torment of hell. It is eternal death. Now, brothers and sisters, there is a very real way in which Jesus Christ suffered both the first and the second death simultaneously. Jesus really died physically. His Burial is the historical testimony of that fact, as question and answer 41 summarizes. But the death of Jesus Christ was not like the death of anyone else, because the death of Jesus Christ was not just a first death. It was simultaneously the second death. At the same time that Jesus died physically on the cross, Jesus also died the suffering, the payment, the punishment of the lake of fire. The second death. The penalty of hell. So if we think about what is, what is the greatest act of love that a person can do for another? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life 
for his friends. And there have been times in the history of this world when that greatest love has been demonstrated. There have been those who have died for another. Now, why is the death of Jesus Christ the single greatest act of love? He didn't die for another in the way that some others have. He didn't jump on a grenade. He didn't hold someone above the water as he was drowning. He he didn't he didn't do it in that physical and physically visible way that some have showed that great act of love for others. What did he do? He died spiritually for others. He died the second death. Simultaneously as he was dying his first death and he died not just for one person, not just for you know, perhaps a, a squad of soldiers and, and it is a great act of love when someone has laid down their life for, for another or, or perhaps even for, for a group of others. But Jesus did not just die for one person or for a few persons. Jesus died the second death as He died His first death and He died the second death for every single person who has ever believed in Him. It was at one time the laying down of his life for others in a way that no one else could do it. Because no one else is perfect. No one else is righteous. No one else can say, I'll take the penalty of the second death for another because everyone else deserves that second death. And he did it for many. And he did it not just as a man, but as the God-man with the divine power which made him able to take all of that divine wrath upon himself in one time. The time when he was also dying. The physical death. And so Jesus can show the greatest act of love in a way which is much greater than anyone else ever could. Jesus Christ can stand against the powers of hell for you and for me and for all believers who have ever lived. And he did this all on one afternoon on the cross because he has divine power even as he came in the flesh. Jesus Christ earned salvation through his perfect priestly work. So we're looking at Christ's death. Christ's death for you, Christ's death for me, as we believe in him and trust in him. First, Christ's pleading intercession. It's verse 7. Christ's willing sacrifice, that Christ went. He willingly did this. He willingly accomplished this. And then uh, Christ's final purpose, verses 9 and 10. Brothers and sisters, let's begin with that pleading 
intercession. What part of the life of Christ was lived for others? Well, all of Christ's life. His whole life had to be perfect. His whole life had to be without sin. And this was true in all the days of His flesh. So verse 7 tells us we're thinking in a special way about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the time when the eternal Son of God, and that was, you know, we're, we're, we're jumping into the middle of Hebrews, right? But that's, that's, that's the whole focus of Hebrews chapter 1. God, Jesus Christ, is a Son unlike any other Son. He's the eternal Son of God. He's the perfect divine Son of God. The divine Son of God came in the flesh, incarnate, as a man, and He lived His whole life in perfection. But there is a zooming in upon especially two events. Because when verse 7 speaks about how Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, well, Jesus was a man of prayer. There were many of those. But we're zooming in especially on two moments. With loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And what two places does that take us to especially? It takes us to the two places of the last day of Jesus Christ on this earth. It takes us to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, and it takes us to Golgotha, the, the place of the cross. And so please turn back with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we're going to go to Gethsemane. And we're going to consider the, the prayers and the supplications the loud cries, the tears, the sweated drops of blood from Christ. Now, again, as the Hebrews count the day, as Jews count the day, the day begins when the sun sets. So this is the day of the death of Christ. Because Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, and the sun has set, and Christ will die before the sun sets again. And what are the prayers and supplications of Jesus on that night? Beginning at verse 41 of Luke chapter 22. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now what is that cup? The psalmist in Psalm 78 speaks about the cup of the Lord from which judgment is poured out. Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 15 speaks about the wine of wrath. What is the cup? When Jesus says, let the cup pass from me, what is the cup? It is the cup of the wrath of God. It is the cup of hell. Now the 
the, the Apostles' Creed, basically, basically every line is, is directly from Scripture except for He descended into hell. If we used the picture which is more common throughout from Psalm 78 and through the prophets, the image which Jesus is considering, which Jesus is tormenting over as He prays to the Father on the night of His death, we, we might say it just a little bit differently. Instead of He descended into hell, we might say it, He drank hell. Because that is what Jesus did. That is what the picture is here. That is what Jesus is praying about. Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass. Jesus came in the flesh. He was man on earth. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He existed before creation. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus knows what hell is. And so when Jesus speaks about hell, and that's what Jesus is doing when He says, this cup, that should tell us how we should think about and talk about hell. How flippantly is that word used? How flippantly do you use that word? Or how often do you hear it used in a flippant and non-thinking manner and you just kind of let it roll over you because you hear it spoken that way so often and it does not send shivers down your spine the way it should. When Jesus spoke about hell, about the cup of the divine wrath of God, Jesus was absolutely serious. And He was weak to the point of needing the strength of angels. He was in agony. He prayed all the more earnestly and His sweat was like drops of blood. And this, this is what Christ has done for you. He drank the cup. He drank hell. He suffered hell. He suffered the second death so that as you trust in Him, you do not have to. Be comforted. It is done. The cup is drunk. The work is accomplished. And this morning, for those who are here, we talked about value. Worthy of honor, worthy of value, different groups, different, different roles that are highlighted as worthy of honor. Who, who, who is 
valued by God. Every single one of God's people. Because if you repent of your sins and you trust in Him, you are valued so highly that Christ willingly drank the cup of hell so that you would be free from hell. There is nothing like the love of Christ. There is no death for others like the death of Christ. All of this was done willingly. It was accomplished. He knew he had to do it. So we're coming into verse 8. We're coming into our second point. There's this phrase, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. What is that? Mean? Well, it doesn't mean the same thing that it means for us. Okay. When, when we think about learning obedience, or if we change that phrase a little bit, learning by experience, usually for us, that means I just really didn't do it very well the first time. Uh, but I've done it once, and so now I have a better idea of how to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it better the next time. Well, learning by experience is something of what is going on in verse 8 when it speaks about Jesus learned obedience. But of course, it's, it's different from, from how we learn obedience because Christ, uh, Christ did it perfectly. But the, but the focus, the essential takeaway is this, that Christ did it, that Christ accomplished it. That Christ went and lived out the obedience. He learned obedience in that sense. Uh, salvation for sinners could not be just a theory. It, it, it could not be just an idea. It had to be something accomplished. And that's the, the emphasis and how the word learned is being used here. It's, it's speaking to us about the fact that Jesus really was a man. He really was on earth. He really went and did it. Now, Philip Hughes uh, once said it this way when uh, speaking about uh, Hebrews 5 verse 8, quote, Obedience was learned, that is, it was achieved as a personal reality, end of quote. And this is especially, again, in reference to his suffering because we needed the whole life of Christ to be lived for us, but it is especially in his suffering that he saves us. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus willingly learned willingly experienced in the flesh that goes back to the beginning of verse 7 in the days of his flesh. We're speaking about the eternal God, but we're speaking about the eternal God in the flesh. The one who grew in wisdom and stature, Luke 2, because though he was God, he took on human nature. He grew in wisdom and stature. He learned obedience. He accomplished obedience. Jesus went and did this. He did it all Willingly, in that 
Although he was a son, what, is, what, is, what does that mean there at the beginning of verse 8? Well, again, we're, we're jumping right into the middle of Hebrews, right? We're in Hebrews 5. But if we read Hebrews chapter 1, we know what the authors of Hebrews means when he talks about Jesus as a son. It means we're talking about the one who is the son of God. We're talking about the one who for a little while made himself lower than the angels, but who really has divine authority over all things. Although he was a son, although He was divine, although He was God, although He in that sense had no compulsion to come and to become a man in the flesh, yet He did. Why? Because He willingly came down and learned obedience. He willingly came down and accomplished the act of obedient suffering in order to save us from our sins. He willingly came. He willingly did it. Though He is God, He became man and as a man in the flesh suffered death, the first and second death at the same time, to save you and me if only we trust in Him. Because we we cannot learn obedience in this way. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. James chapter 2. We can only learn by stumbling. And even then, it's just from one stumble to another. We are not righteous. We needed the righteous one to come and willingly do it. And Christ has done it. Consider how uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about the obedience of Christ and how this is how we have life in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that is, the first man, Adam, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Not your obedience, not mine. We cannot save ourselves. His obedience. He came. He learned it. He did it. He accomplished it. Though He was the eternal Son of God, He came and did it willingly. So again, they say, whoever you are, whatever, whatever role, whatever suffering you are or are not called to, if you repent, if you trust in Him, you are valuable. Christ came and willingly drank the cup of hell to save you from that suffering. So, and we come to our third point, Christ's final purpose. This is one of those times when we've already been talking about that final purpose all throughout. It's the final purpose of salvation. It's the final purpose of being saved. But see how verse 9 so, uh, so plainly and beautifully says it. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. 
just as we can't think about learning obedience in relation to the perfectly righteous One, Jesus Christ, in the same way that we learn obedience, so when we think about being made perfect, it is not uh, we cannot speak of it in the same way when we speak about the perfectly righteous One. Uh, but once again, it emphasizes the reality of the cross. It, re- it emphasizes the reality that something has been accomplished, what is later in the book of Hebrews called the once-for-all sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is what is perfectly accomplished there. He is our source of eternal salvation. He has done it. All that is necessary that we would be saved is Done. Now the the verb for made perfect here at the at the beginning of verse nine it uh, it comes from it's one of the Greek verbs that comes from the root uh, telos which uh, which is a word that's basically not in our English language technically it is but one of those words that nobody really ever says teleology. Okay, but uh, but what does it what does it come down to? Well, it's a word that speaks not only to something being done, but it speaks to something being brought to its final purpose, being brought to its final purpose perfectly. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is done perfectly. And while this word is very very rare in uh, English, when's the last time you heard somebody say the word teleology? It is a word which is quite common in the Greek. It is used in, in, in a few different ways and it, it even has a couple of different very closely related verb forms. And so there is another time when this same root is, is part of the word that Christ takes upon himself. And now, Going back to verse 7, remember in verse 7 I said supplications with loud cries and tears and that related especially to two places, Gethsemane and Golgotha. Well, what is one of the loud cries of Golgotha? The one word from the cross and it's one word in, in the Greek, it's three in the English translation, the one word from the cross where the gospel writers specifically tell us that Christ shouted it that Christ gave a loud cry. Do you know the words? They are the words, It is finished. Teleosai. It is from this same word. It is perfectly completed. It is done. It is done. That is the loud cry of our Savior on the cross. What is He saying? He's saying, I can now die physically because I am done with the second death. I have finished drinking the cup. I have finished paying for your sins. If only you trust in me. It is perfectly accomplished. It is finished. It's the loud cry of the cross. And then Christ gave up His Spirit. And then Christ the only person to ever die the second death before he died the first death, died physically. And he was buried. Of course, he is saved from death. 
So we go back once more to verse 7 because he gloriously conquers the grave and arose on the third day. Christ died for me. Christ died for me. It was his final purpose. His perfect purpose. His work as priest is done. And so he is the source of eternal salvation. Now, unless Christ comes again, we will still die the first death, but we will not die the second death. If only we trust in Him. And really, brothers and sisters, that helps us to make sense of the phrase, Christ has died for me. Christ has died for me. The lake of fire is taken away. Though I deserve it, Christ took it for me. Now, though we are never saved by our own work. We are only saved by Christ's work. Only He could learn obedience and accomplish it in that perfect way. Only He can be on the cross and say, it is finished. Christ does call us to obedience. We see that at the end of verse 9. To all who obey Him. James says, faith without works is dead. The Apostle Paul, if you turn back just a few pages to Titus uh, chapter 1, it's back just a few pages from Hebrews 5, says it this way in Titus 1 verse 16. Titus 1 verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So James says, faith without works is dead. Paul says, if you, if you profess but there are no works, you are detestable. Dead, detestable is the same thing. When we think rightly about the word hell, when we think rightly about what Christ has done, how can we profess His name and not be seeking to put our sins to death? Now, we are not going to do it perfectly until we are called to glory. But we are called to be obedient, to be those who obey Him, to be those who are putting our sins to death. Question answer 43. What further benefit do you receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By His power, our old man is crucified, put to death. In other words, we kill our sins and buried with Him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us. We're still going to struggle against sin, but sin is not going to rule us but instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him. And it is plain that this 
is the kind of obedience that Hebrews 5 is talking about. There's nothing in Hebrews 5 that speaks about us earning our own salvation. No, that is only what Jesus did in the flesh and only He could do it. But seeing what Christ has done, having true faith in Him, we will obey Him. We will not be ruled by sin. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, this is what Christ has done. And it is, it is an act uh, which is done, which has a lasting impact. Really not going to get into all the details of verse 10, but uh, we're going to give a brief overview. Uh, what is... Um, there are things where there is a one-time moment that really changes things, but then they have an ongoing impact. And um, uh, for those who are here this morning, this is an especially appropriate illustration that uh, we, could, we could think of ordination of an elder as one of those things. When an elder is ordained, that's a, that's a one-time moment. There's the laying on of hands. This is the language from the end of 1 Timothy 5. And it's a one-time moment that changes a status that has ongoing impact. If that elder is then faithful, it's going to have an ongoing impact in shepherding uh, work in God's house. Now, on a much greater scale, and from the only chief shepherd, the cross is something like that insofar as the cross is a one-time event and it is the changing event of the world. But it has an ongoing impact and that's true in a number of ways. It's true in a number of ways and one of those ways is that Christ continues to work in us by His power. See that at the beginning of question and answer 43? He continues to work righteousness in us by His power. He does not leave us on our own. If we are coming to Christ in true faith, it's not only that our, pen, our sins are paid for, it's also that Christ will lead us into righteousness. And then there's, there's so much more that we, we can say here, but for now, we simply say it has ongoing impact. And uh, brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews is, uh, is, even, uh, is even telling us that in, in what we might say some, some technical ways. You know that, uh, that verb that we talked a little bit about at the beginning of verse 9, being made perfect. In the Greek Old Testament, that verb is often used for the ordination of a priest. That's the verb that they use in the Greek Old Testament. That when, the pre, when a priest was ordained, a priest was made perfect. And so the reference to Melchizedek in verse 10, there's a lot going on there. And it's not the easiest to make sense of. And in some ways we're thinking, well, he's just reminding us of a name that he's mentioned that he'll come back to in chapter 7. But there's more to it than that. The author of Hebrews is, is speaking about the ongoing impact of the work of Christ. He is made perfect. He is our perfect priest. And as a priest of the order of Melchizedek, he's not only 
priest, but also king ruling over us. And so, um, brothers and sisters, there is there is this this glorious teaching about the work of Christ on the cross, and that was our focus tonight. But know that the work of Christ on the cross has an ongoing impact. He continues to be your priest. He continues to be your king. Serve him. Be led by him. Love him. Obey him. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God, Heavenly Father, how glorious is the greatest act of love this world has ever seen. May we indeed trust in Christ and trust in that great saving work accomplished on the cross. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's turn and now in the Trinity Psalter hymnals number 277. Number 277. And then let's stand together to sing all the stanzas.
Amen. It's time for our evening gifts, free will offerings this, this evening. That is for the general fund. And then after this, our parting blessing and then our doxology from Psalm 89, 89b, stanza 9. stand receiving the parting blessing of our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.